Wings for Breakfast is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Do you know Red Wings tickets tend to drop right before the game starts? Well, GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, then shows you all the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. And guys, this is not just sports tickets. They also have music tickets, theater tickets, whatever you're looking for, GameTime is the app to do it. More than 12 million fans have already downloaded the GameTime app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice-weekly Red Wings podcast on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman and with me as always is Prashant Iyer. We're recording this at uh, late Sunday night. I am still jet-lagged so it feels like lunchtime. Prashant, how are you doing? Uh, Jet-lagged in a sense of being one of the few people that benched Aaron Rodgers today. So, (laughs) you know, just trying to recover from that basically all day. Who'd you start instead? Well, so I've got Lamar Jackson, and so it's almost like an auto start for Lamar yeah. Jackson. And then it, it's kind of hard to justify putting Aaron Rodgers in, but then Rodgers goes and throws for, what, five touchdowns and then ran for another. And then you you feel pretty bad, especially because I had, I think, both Adam Thielen and Will Fuller get hurt in the first quarter. So it's a little bit of a rough week. At least Thielen got you a touchdown. I, I For our listeners, I gave Prashant some of the worst fantasy advice ever this week, I think. I think I told you to start. Who did I tell you to start McLaurin over? Uh, you told me to start McLaurin over, I think it was, I can't remember which receiver or if I was asking you in the flex spot over like Marlon Mack or something like that. Either way, probably I can't even remember call. anymore. I don't think the Redskins scored a point today. <laughs> no, they were awful. I mean, that game was awful. It was basically like they were playing on a slip and slide. Yeah, all future fantasy requests should go through uh, our fantastic producer Chris. So I will, uh, I'll retire from the fantasy advice giving game, uh, unless you're in my fantasy hockey league and want some advice. I'll be happy to advise you <laughs> on that. Uh, getting into the Red Wings now, I guess it was a pretty, pretty much a letdown of a trip for them. They went 0 and 3, I think outscored by a total of 12 to 3 on that trip. Uh, and after what was a pretty good start for them, I think shades of last season have come on. Pretty pretty starkly and pretty abruptly. What what did you think watching those? Yeah, we alluded to this a little bit in, in the last episode where when we were comparing how the Wings had started basically through five games relative to where they were last year, even though a lot of people felt better about how the Wings had performed, you know, statistically they hadn't really done any better than they had in, in the previous five games last year. Remember last year they started 0-5-2 or 1-5-2. It took them a while before they were actually able to find their rhythm. And so I think you saw a little bit of that catch up to them out in Western Canada where they basically got thumped by the Canucks, they got thumped by the Flames, and then they were able to hold their own for the most part against the Oilers, although the Oilers did really control most of the five-on-five play. And so I think it's a disappointing trip in in the sense that there was a lot of optimism based on how the Wings did in their first five games, but at the same time, I think it was a sobering reality for kind of what we should expect for the Wings moving forward. Yeah, I agree. And I, th- I think if there's one positive thing you take away from the trip is that they, you know, in the, in the 
the final period of a pretty brutal three games and four nights against three teams that are probably all better than them. They were able to to control the play in that last period, showing a little bit of resilience, but you have to kind of counterbalance that with uh, score effects and, and the expectation that trailing teams are going to have pretty good third periods in general. So they, you know, they kept Connor McDavid in check and that's about the only good thing you can say about the whole swing. I mean, this was, uh, this was kind of what you expected to see from the Red Wings this year. Maybe not the five to ones. I think, and I, I think they played a lot better than that against uh, Edmonton, certainly, uh, who they only lost two to one. But um, a, a rough swing, no doubt. And I'm curious that the thing that stood out the most to me was was that the Red Wings did try to shift the lines up a little bit, and then rather quickly went back to Bertrand, Larkin, Mantha. Um, I think they did that in part because the Oilers made it pretty easy for them with the way that they were trying to match up the McDavid line against the Philpole line. They seem to want to, you know, the Red Wings seem to want to get Glenn Denning then onto that line to match up against McDavid, which freed up Bertuzzi to go back up top. But what were your thoughts when the lines did get juggled, especially in the Calgary game? I think the Wings are basically playing with found money when, you know, as you and I have talked, uh, the Bertuzzi-Larkin-Mantha line has been fantastic, like we all expected. And the, the story the entire season was going to be, uh, could they get secondary scoring from somewhere else? And kind of what drove that first five games optimism was really the play of the fourth line uh, with De La Rose and uh, his his line mates, Abdul Kader and Helm. Those three guys had had a fantastic start. And so I think Blaschel was, you know, basically having that luxury. But, you know, as time, you know, went on, you you had to find scoring in your middle six with Athanasiu's line and then. Uh, both Nielsen and or Philpola, depending on how you want to determine who's the lead of that line. Those two lines really needed to get going. And so the the move was for the Flames game, let's see if we can uh, move uh, Bertuzzi down from that top line in hopes of giving Athanasiu maybe another talented line mate to play with, bump Tarosi down. Um, but ultimately, the Wings kind of scrapped that pretty quickly after about a game and a half. I wasn't surprised to see that happen just because, like we've talked about, you can't get away with just one line dominating. And as good as the fourth line's been, I think it's very unlikely that they're able to sustain that over the course of the season. And so you really needed to find a way to get Athanasiu going, Nielsen going, uh, Philpola going, Hiroshi going. All of these guys have had basically big offers on the start of the season, so I wasn't surprised to see it. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't in the, in the scenario that I thought would be most likely to work. I think of the three guys uh, on that top line, Bertuzzi, Larkin, and Mantha, the one guy who I think drives play less than the other two is Bertuzzi. And so when I threw this idea out to you on the last episode, I said, move Mantha down because Mantha has always been a driver of play. He might be a guy that can control pace with Athanasiu and see if potentially... You know, he can buy some space for Athanasiu given how much teams have been keying in on him. But, you know, the experiment didn't work. Blashwell quickly scrapped it, but ultimately it didn't make a difference in Edmonton. Yeah, and if I had to take a guess at why it was Helm and Bertuzzi that made the switch there, I think it would be because they saw kind of Bertuzzi's role as maybe the one that another guy could come the closest to, to fulfilling in terms of just being a really hard forechecker, being a little bit disruptive on other teams' breakouts. And you saw Helm get a goal out of it, crashing the net hard after Mantha went on a breakaway, got a puck actually through, uh, was it Riddick? Was it against Calgary? Yeah. I think that was the Calgary. Yeah, yeah. So 
and then he you know pokes it in for a goal. So my guess is that is kind of the reason that that was the switch that was made is it was the one that they could kind of most closely replicate the top line by by making that switch. There's not really another player even remotely like Mantha on the roster and I'm not even necessarily saying there's another really close like for Bertuzzi, but at least Helm can kind of replicate a few of the things that Bertuzzi does well and and frankly Helm's been kind of one of their better players so far all things considered. Uh, I'm sure there's a certain uh, sub-community of Twitter that will be very excited to hear that, uh, the Darren Helm is elite fan club out there. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one of the surprising statistics from the early part of the season is that Darren Helm has been arguably right up there with the top line in terms of his overall performance. Um, So if you take his numbers from natural stat trick, and I'm filtering here by, you know, players that have played at least 50 minutes, uh, he has a five-on-five expected goals for percentage, and again, this is the metric that talks about the quality of shots taken when that player is on the ice. Um, his five-on-five expected goals for percentage is 66%, which is by far the best number on the team, and it's actually the 10th best number in the league amongst forwards, um, which is a mind-blowing number, and it's not just because of what his teammates are doing. In fact, he is actually 11th in the league in 5-on-5 five five individual expected goals for per 60 minutes of his 5-on-5 five five ice time. And so basically, when he's on the ice, he's driving chances, and as a result, his team is driving chances at a top 10 forward level. Now, this is a really small sample size. Helms played just over 90 minutes at 5-on-5. Five five. Certainly not something we think is going to be sustainable when these guys play upwards of 1,000 minutes, but... Uh, it's a very interesting number, and you know there was a lot of people very upset that Helm was the guy that got elevated um, to the top line when Bertuzzi got dropped as opposed to moving up Athanasiu or even Hiroshi. But the truth be told, you can make a strong argument that Helm's been you know, arguably the fourth best forward on the team, if not better, um, and he deserved that opportunity to play up there. And so I think it's been really encouraging for Wings fans to see that Helm, both Helm and really Justin Abdelkader to an extent have had a little bit of a resurgence in the early part of the season. And at the same time, as exciting as that can be, you're kind of disappointed because the guys you wanted to take the next step, like Hiroshi, Athanasiu, aren't really the guys that are doing that for you. Yeah, and I think, you know, if you were going to tell Red Wings fans that they had a solid, you know, seven, eight game stretch where aligned with Justin Abdelkader, Darren Helm, and Jacob De La Rose, you know, given that some a couple of those games uh that line maybe wasn't fully intact but nonetheless had been the second best line uh you would have liked to come out of that with a lot better record than was it was three and five right now so i think that is the the tough break here that the red wings are kind of staring down i I am curious when you mentioned the individual expected goals per 60 is that is that stat fixed now can we use that again so to our knowledge all the games prior to october 16th have not had their coordinates fixed yet um, but all of the games after October 16th have had their coordinates corrected. So it's still a little bit of a mixed sample here. And like I said, I wouldn't compare this number to prior seasons, but given that we've identified that the problem was universal and that every team uh, was equally affected, or I should say every arena was equally affected, um, you know, I think it's still a useful metric to be able to compare within the season, particularly for individual players. Um, Although we should note that players that do tend to get more of their chances right in front of the net are likely to be more impacted than, you know, some of these other guys. But still, I think for now, 
Um, the sample's a little bit mixed, uh, given that we're only on October 20th or 21st when you guys are listening to this. Um, but I would still use the sample within the context of the season. Yeah, so you had an interesting stat, another interesting stat on Helm about his the, z- the zone starts, the, how, where the shifts that he is doing, this pretty impressive uh, share of the expected goals, where those shifts are starting and why that's interesting. Do you want to explain a little bit? And then I actually have a couple of questions that I, I wonder if our listeners don't share. Sure. So when a lot of the times when we're talking about different statistics, one of the important factors to account for is context. So one of the big contextual factors is where do players start their shifts? Because um, a guy like Luke, De- Luke Lindenning, we know he's heavy, heavy defensive zone usage. He's put out for defensive zone faceoffs, rarely gets the opportunity to start in the offensive zone. Um, and so as a result, should you expect a guy who has, you know, 75-25 defensive zones to offensive zone starts, should you expect that guy to drive offense at the same rate as somebody who has the opposite uh, deployment? And so for an average NHL player, probably 40 to 50% of their shifts will start on the fly. That's a line change that's occurring while play is um, ongoing. And so it's really the other 50% we're talking about from where they start for faceoffs. And so in Darren Holmes' case, he's taken 130 shifts this year. 78 have been on the fly. He's had 38 start in the neutral zone. He's had eight in the defensive zone, but he's only had six offensive zone faceoff starts. So that's six out of his 130 shifts where he's actually started with the puck in the offensive zone. Granted, it's on a faceoff and the team still needs to win the draw, but that six offensive zone starts is by far the fewest of any player um, in that top 10 range. And actually it's the 30th fewest for forwards who have played at least 50 minutes. And so it's very surprising that he's been able to generate these results without really being afforded the same opportunity as some of the other elite star players. And so what that's kind of indicating is he's done a really good job on his neutral zone shifts and his on-the-fly shifts of being able to recover the puck and then drive the puck up the ice uh, to generate chances. And so I think that's a really encouraging sign to see. Yeah. Okay, so not to put you on the spot here and and make you speak for an an entire stat, but I've always wondered with zone starts – so I've kind of used it to identify more or less kind of who coaches trust in the D zone because those are tense moments, obviously, a face-off in the defensive zone. And that certainly, I think, can apply here to Helm. But when we're talking about measuring kind of a guy's shot share or offensive output or something like that through zone starts, why is zone starts a like, markedly better predictor than like you know the face-off percentage when he's on the ice? Because to me, even if you're starting in the D zone, you know, winning the draw is the thing that most dictates kind of possession and how much offense I, I should expect from a player? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So I think the tricky part with uh, going off of the face-off percentage, so just to clarify your question here, Max, you're asking why is face-off percentage not as good of a stat relative to zone or starts? Or on-ice or... face-off percentage, right. Like, like wh- why, why do we trust that zone starts kind of can be a proxy for having the puck, I guess, or having those opportunities? I think zone starts are a little bit of a proxy simply because they do indicate, like you talked about, those coaching um, scenarios in terms of who's trusted in what type of situations. And so the on-ice face-off percentage doesn't necessarily account for, like, which zones you're in. Um, And then, again, depending on which zones you're in, um, that can also dictate where those shots are going to come from. And then also, even if you win the zone, 
uh, win the face-off, the rate of shots that occur right off of a face-off tends to drop precipitously after the first 5 to 10 seconds. So even though you've maybe won the face-off, if you're going to get a shot off of it, it usually happens in those first 5 to 10 seconds. And then kind of the shot rates return back to what we would consider to be a normal play. And so I don't know that that's necessarily a great proxy for you know, puck possession or shots, but I do think when you take something like zone starts and you put it in a regression model that can control for all the other factors, this is an important factor you want to control for because a player can't really control his deployment. The coach is the one who's dictating the scenarios that he's going to get deployed in. Uh, and so in Helm's case, you know, he's basically getting slightly more defensive zone shift starts um, relative to offensive zone shift starts. And so that's something con contextually you'd want to account for when you were looking at his metrics. That's interesting. Yeah, it's always been something I've wondered about because to me it's like you, you can start the, the your shift or whatever in an offensive zone face-off, but you lose the face-off and you don't have the puck, and then all of a sudden we're, we're looking at you like a player who should have a higher, I guess, shot output or something than he does, but really you haven't had the puck to have that kind of output. So that, that's good to know. That's good information, and I, I hope it's useful for our listeners too as, as we all kind of – get a little bit more informed about uh, advanced stats and, and, and the new ways to look at, at hockey. And another you know area that I think we should probably talk about, though, before we, we get too deep in here is that the special teams on this road trip for the Red Wings were pretty brutal. And, and at this point, I think we can say they haven't been very good uh, so far into the year. I mean, we're about two weeks into the season, and, and the Red Wings are near the bottom of the league, at least in the underlying numbers in both uh, both penalty kill and power play. Yeah, I mean, their penalty kill, we talked about this a little bit um, in the episode right after the Vancouver game. They got lit up by uh, Vancouver's power play. Um, they had really very little in the way of being able to block any of those shots. Um, so they, the penalty kill has really struggled, and I think this is a, a unit that I've looked at extensively over the last few years in terms of what are some systematic things that the Wings do differently that maybe puts them in a position to give up more chances against. And so we've talked previously that one of the things the Wings do is in running their wedge plus one. And so, again, that's that triangle that's in front of the net. And then the one forward that's out at the top that's supposed to kind of chase the puck around um, the, the perimeter to basically put the opposition in disadvantageous scoring areas. Uh, one of the interesting things about the Wings penalty kills are just once that puck is in the zone, that rover forward, that plus one, is very, very relaxed. There's not a lot of aggression. They're not really chasing the puck around the perimeter. They're doing a really, they're almost basically falling back into that wedge and really sagging off and daring those point shots to basically be taken. And so on the surface, that seems like a great idea because, you know, the expected or the quality of a point shot in general is relatively low compared to a slot shot or a um, you know, a rebound chance in front or a deflection or a one-timer. But the problem by giving that point guy so much space is they're actually also opening up the slot passes um, as that point guy moves the puck to the boards. They're able to actually form these quick passing triangles against the Wings defense that has basically exploited them. And so today on Twitter, I put out a graph just showing some of the shot locations against. And you basically can see there is a heavy, heavy concentration of shots right in the slot, um, one of the most dangerous areas uh, on the power play, and there's a heavy concentration of shots against Detroit's penalty kill. And in fact, that's where really all of the penalty or the power play goals against have come, 
is they basically all come right down the middle of the ice, um, either on one point shots from the top that are deflected in or slot shots that are coming um, right from the middle of those face-off dots. And so this is a big area of concern for Detroit's penalty kill that I think they're going to have to look at either on video or figure out if there's a way that they can tighten up that slot coverage and maybe force the, the point guy to move the puck a little bit more. Yeah, really illuminating because I think for me, you're getting into a little bit here. I've heard this style discussed before, and I, I want to say it was Arizona State's hockey coach talking about how a, a defensive philosophy might just be if a guy's got the puck at, at his side of the blue line, just take away everything else because if he shoots the puck, that's the save a goalie really wants to try to stop is the one that's really far away and they can get a decent angle at it. Um, in, in theory, that should be working, and I think that there you can see kind of almost shades of that, if, if not that idea of like that same principle at work uh, when you're talking about a not super aggressive penalty kill in terms of pressuring the point. So I, I get, I could get that from a phil- philosophical standpoint, but the results that it's yielding right now, and, and the, the graph you tweeted has unblocked shot locations and they're all coming from right there in the slot. It's a pretty, you guys should go check out it on Prashant's Twitter at Iyer, I-Y-E-R underscore Prashant, P-R-A-S-H-A-N-T-H. Uh, it's, it's pretty damning. And I think it explains just about everything you need to know about the Red Wings power play to this point, which is that they're giving up a ton from the most dangerous areas and two plus two equals four, right? You're going to get scored on a lot doing things that way. I don't know if it's the, if it's the fault of the system. I don't know if it's a small sample thing, if it's a effectiveness thing, it almost certainly can be all of the above, but right now the results are, have been pretty, pretty rough for the Red Wings there. Yeah, absolutely, and I think there's a there's a lot to look at here um, to make sure that they can tighten up whatever the the defect is. It does appear that once that puck is getting into those half boards, they're finding passing lanes, and I think this was beautifully done by Leon Dreisaitl in the Edmonton game, where even though he's a left-handed shot and you've got McDavid on the right boards, technically that pass shouldn't really be available with Dreisaitl in the slot and McDavid on the half boards, but Dreisaitl actually had so much time. He was setting up with his back to McDavid. McDavid was actually able to hit him with the pass on the backhand, and then Dreisaitl could then pull his stick to the other side of the puck and actually generate chances. And they actually took advantage of that two or three times in that game to generate really high-quality chances. So bottom line, there's too much time available um, for the opposition in the slot right now against Detroit's penalty kill. The problem for Detroit is it, the special teams issues go well beyond the penalty kill. I think there's a lot of issues on the power play, and frankly, you could argue there's even more. Max, what have you seen on the power play thus far, um, particularly on that Western Conference trip? Yeah, I mean, the 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 shift that stands out to it on me, I think it was in the Calgary game, but it might have been Vancouver. They all blurred together, to be honest. Uh, there was one where the Red Wings got kind of deep in their own zone and we're trying to break it out and they just could not for the life of them on, on that first unit get out of their own end and to me two things at work here number one they didn't win a whole lot of faceoffs. it didn't seem like on the power play I don't know I mean if when you look at where they rank league wide I think they're like third from the bottom in faceoff percentage on the power plays and I'm not trying to bring everything back to faceoffs on today's episode but when you look especially at the power play issues, losing that many draws on the power play is going to hurt the Red Wings substantially for two reasons. Number one, obviously, it, it cuts down the time that you're going to be able to spend on the power play. And, and, you know, if you lose the draw, they're going to clear it. That's 20 to 30 seconds right off the hop. And number two, 
I think it kind of accentuates a problem the Red Wings have on their entries. If, if you can't get it set up cleanly and you're trying, uh, you know, after breaking into the zone and you're trying to do it from coming up ice repeatedly, you're setting yourself up for the, for maybe the, the least effective part of your power play to get the most spotlight time. So, you know, I, I think the Red Wings have the players to break in to the zone on the power play. And I know they have the p- players to execute when they are set up. But right now, they haven't really been able to get all those things moving in concert. And and that starts really being in their own end when you get a hard forechecking team that pressures you a lot. Uh, if you can't get it out of your own end and, and up the ice, you're going to squander that power play more times than not. I think teams maybe have adjusted a little bit to them after knowing that Anthony Mantha's one-timer is going to be a, a very serious component of this team's power play for as often as possible. Um that could be part of this too, is that maybe some lanes that he might have had in the first couple of games or even the preseason maybe drying up a little bit. But I, I think it's across the board right now. I think early early in the season they had some power plays they didn't score on. And Jeff Blaschel said the same thing, you know, where maybe not too worried about that outcome because the, the, the methods, the process seemed okay. But certainly on this road trip, I don't think that would be the case. Yeah, their power play, you know, I think you hit on a lot of important points with the power play, and I think it's really important not to understate how important it is to win the faceoff in the offensive zone, particularly, um, you know, Dylan Larkin, I think, has been one who has really struggled thus far. I think he's winning just 42% of his draws on the power play right now, and so having to start every single shift basically with the puck being thrown down the ice, losing 20 seconds, and then having to rely on their power play entries, which have been suboptimal uh, thus far and have really have been sub- suboptimal since Jim Hiller left uh, to go to Toronto with Mike Babcock. Uh, the Wings are really playing to their weaknesses with that. Um, but speaking of weaknesses, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, where the team has struggled, um, where they've had a little bit of success with the the top line and with Darren Helm. You know, but one player that stood out to me as as a guy who needs to get it going for Detroit to really find their game is Andreas Athanasiu, and we've we've touched on this a little bit with him. But Max, have you seen anything about his game that looks different than previous years? Because thus far, he's really struggled with just one assist um, and can't seem to find any part of his game right now. Yeah, I think the one part that's there, I, I think he's had a breakaway per game you know I think like and and they're not they haven't gone in I, I think Athanasiu is the kind of player where it's going to come in waves and it's you know it's also going to come in part on those breakaways and so when, when you get a sample where I think he's played six games and no goals well go back and look and I bet you can find three that very much could have been if you know he elevates the puck a foot or two or you know the move works a little crisper or something like that and that you know with so few games it's going to stand out a lot more than I think it will over the long haul. Um, he, you know, he's the kind of player that you just have to wait for it to happen with because you know how good he is. He did it all year last year, really, even though uh, I'm sure there was, I think, I feel like there was at least one stretch that he had that was kind of like this where the puck just wasn't going in. And then he responded and, and caught fire for a little bit um, on his way to 30 goals. So I don't really see, I, I don't certainly don't think he's looked like really great and it's just getting robbed or anything like that. But I think, when you look at how a lot of his goals come and it is on the rush, you can still find those rushes and the puck just hasn't gone in. And so I, I feel like with him, it's a wait and see. I'm sure there are parts of his game where can he be a little bit more engaged? I don't know, probably defensively or something like that. But to me, it all comes down to when you have a score, if they don't score on their scoring chances, things are going to look bleak. And when they start to, they'll look better. And that's where I come down on Athanasiu. 
Yeah, I think, you know, the the point is well made that the breakaways are still there. He's still having the opportunities. He's still drawing penalties. These are things that he's consistently done year in and year out. I think the alarming piece for me is that he's beyond just the breakaways. He's just not getting the opportunity to shoot the puck. So this year, um, he's averaging 11 shots per 60 minutes. And when I say shots, I'm including anything that's directed at the net. So these are shots that are blocked, shots that are on goal, um, shots that miss the net. So he's averaging about 11 and a half shots per 60 minutes uh, at five on five this year, which is a full five shots down from last year and about six shots down from his career average. And so we're basically saying one third of his usual shot volume is absent right now. And again, we're still working with really small samples here. He's played six games, 82 minutes, not a whole lot to work with. But that is one thing that has stuck out to me is beyond the breakaways, I have not noticed him being able to just put the puck on net at five on five, which he always excelled at. One of the things that made Athens see such a dangerous goal scorer in years prior was that he had both the volume aspect and the quality aspect with the finishing talent. And so he's always been historically a 15% uh, sh- career shooter, which is very, very rare in the NHL today. But if the volume is missing and the quality is missing, as his expected goals for per 60 minutes. So I mentioned Darren Helm was 11th in the league at 1.17 individual expected goals per 60 minutes. Athanasiu is actually at less than half of that. He's at 0.54, which puts him at 198th. Um, again, a far cry from where he usually sits, which is about somewhere between 0.7 to 0.8. So I think while he's still getting some chances, I just don't see the same volume, the same quality that he's had in years past. And whether a combination of that is he's still getting comfortable with teammates that he's never played with before, um, we don't know how much Thomas Vanek really aided his game, and Vanek's a guy he got to play with a lot over the last two years. Um, he hasn't really gotten the same minutes with some of the elite guys like Larkin and Mantha uh, that a Tyler Bertuzzi has, and so we don't know how he would look on that line. But at the end of the day, the Wings need him to be that fourth guy um, and the guy driving production from that second line, and it frankly hasn't been there. I'm, I might be sticking my neck out a little bit on this one, but... To me, when you especially when you talk about the individual expected goals and, and the kind of player that he is, man, the Red Wings have only had like two games since the expected goals have been fixed to the point where you know he's the guy who'd be to me candidate number one for being affected by that because if he's getting breakaways and they're being counted as you know backhanders from thirteen feet, that's a pretty low expected goals percent chance, and he's the guy who loves to go to the backhand on the breakaway too. So I don't know. My guess would be he is going to be one of the guys who, if they do go back and retroactively fix how they charted those games, I would guess he will be among those who shoot up the most just because of the, the kind of chances he usually gets are breakaway chances in tight on net and, and often kind of from the side uh, just because it's a deke. You're absolutely right. I mean, his breakaways, for all we know, could be very much discounted and recorded incorrectly, and then that's a reason why his expected goals look so much worse than it's been. And, you know, if they go back and retroactively correct that and he's sitting around point seven, I think that's still notable. I think... Either way, the the volume is absent from years past, um, which is still alarming for him. And then the reason that's very alarming is because at the end of the day, I think we know what we know about Athanasiu. He's not going to drive play for the team. 
Um, right now is five and five expected goals for percentage. I mentioned that Helm was at 66 percent. Um, so that means when the when he's on the ice, the Wings are generating 66 percent of the expected goals for. Athanasiu is sitting at 31%, which is actually 15th worst in the NHL right now. And again, some of that would be alleviated by his individual numbers going up. Potentially that looks a little bit better. But right now, you know, he's not driving play and he's not scoring. And so that's a big uh, red flag for the Red Wings and something they need to look to get better. Right. And one thing that may help his chances, and not at five on five, but I think they're going to probably leave him at power play one, which is where they had him. Uh, toward the back half of this stretch, they moved Tar Hirose down to the to the second unit with Philip Peronic. Although Philip Peronic then moved up because Dennis Chalowski got hurt, kind of a complicated web. But but if Athanasia was able to get up on that top unit, especially if they start to take away the looks from Anthony Mantha on that uh, on the right side of the of the offensive zone, Athanasia could be in line to get a few more chances that way. Although to your point, it still doesn't help at five on five, and and ultimately. The Red Wings haven't gotten enough production or chances or anything out of the lines that he's been on this season, and that has to change regardless of what happens on the breakaways. Because if if your entire line's identity is trying to get two breakaways in a game and and needing to convert on at least one of them, it's going to be a really, really long season, and uh, the Red Wings can't let that happen. Exactly. Um, do you want to take some listener questions? I think we had a handful of really good ones. Yeah, yeah. Let's... Um... So there's at least one really meaty one. Let's uh, let's hold on that one for a second and get into Jeff Waldman's question about Mike Green. Jeff's question is, with how bad Mike Green's been and no chance of him being sat out barring an injury, is there a way to rearrange the pairings to help mitigate his impact? Uh, it's interesting to me because I, I looked at Hockey Stat Cards, which is the site that tracks um dom lucician lucician's game uh game score metric and i think mike green is actually the highest rated red wing defenseman by game score he's tied with Miro heiskanen uh and actually has a better expected goals percentage as tracked by hockey stat cards than than heiskanen does he's so he's at 0.6 which is pretty good for a defenseman he's right there with with heiskanen dunn ristolainen uh hampus lindholm brett pesci like those are some decent names um and yet i think everyone saw in the Let's see, I think it was the Vancouver game. And then certainly continuing into the Western Conference swing, took a couple other penalties. The Vancouver game was, was pretty rough for him. So what have your thoughts been on Green? What do the stats say about him? And uh, is he as bad as Jeff thinks? This has always been like one of the biggest challenges. When you have a guy that has made several glaring errors that kind of stick in your head, particularly when they result in a goal against. Yep. Um, I think that is one of the big reasons why there is so much of a pushback to the eye test just in general is that we tend to weigh events like that in our head uh, far more than we probably should. And so, for example, you know, the event sticking out of my head is his first period against Vancouver was just awful. Handful of terrible passes, including the one that he flubbed at his, at his blue line that uh, Vancouver came down and quickly converted on. Uh, so those really kind of stick out, but when you take a step back and you look at the stats, you're exactly right. I mean, Green's actually looked numerically like Detroit's best defenseman, um, and in fact, the pairing of Green and Nemeth uh, are sitting right now using natural stat tricks, um, expected goals for percentage. They're sitting at 54.3% in 116 minutes, which is really, really solid. I think the reason that that's sticking in our head is because from a five-on-five goals four percentage, uh, the Wings, you know, with 
Green and Nemeth on the ice are sitting at 27.7%, uh, which is really bad. But at the same time, it's actually not any worse than the Wings' usual pairings that they trot out uh, when Green and Nemeth are together. In fact, DeKaiser and Roenick are at 27.4%, and then Daly and Chalowski are at 27.3%. Um, granted, those two are in smaller sample sizes, but you know, I think it, it's hard because we're looking at it and we're saying, yes, he's making these glaring errors. His skating doesn't look the same. Um, but at the end of the day, his on-ice impact is still there. Um, it reminds me a little bit of when I used to get super excited about Brendan Smith several years back because uh, Brendan Smith was known to make numerous boneheaded errors, grabbing the puck while he was sitting on the bench, turnovers to no one. Um but his on-ice impact always looked incredible. In fact, it was always fringe top 10 in the NHL. And so I wonder if we're kind of verging on a similar scenario where you're going to see Green make mistakes, but that's because he's trying to drive offense. Those are going to sit in your head a lot more than a defenseman that's just throwing the puck up the boards um, and out of play. And I don't know that we're necessarily weighing all of the shots that are generated by outlets by him the same as we are when that one error goes in the back of the net. Yeah, and I think the sample size is doing a little bit of work here too. I mean, by the same metric, Danny DeKaiser is like a negative, about as about as negative as Green is positive. And to my eyes, that's way off. I think DeKaiser has been the best defenseman on the Red Wings. If not, then he's the second best after Hironic. So I, I don't know. I think the answer is probably somewhere in between. I don't think Green has actually been horrible. I think he had a really rocky game in Vancouver. He has blocked 23 shots, apparently, which for a guy who's got the offensive penchant and reputation that he does, uh, that's basically four a game. Like that's, or sorry, three a game. Uh, that's pretty good, and and you'll take that every day from Green certainly. So, um, but if we want to get into kind of the the bare bones of the the question a little bit, is there is there a way that you would reconfigure the D pairings? Even knowing, even if we don't think Green has, has necessarily been the problem, is there a way that you would reconfigure them to be more effective? I think as it stands right now, so Green's fourth in five and five ice time. He's played primarily with Nemeth. So if you're saying I, you need to mitigate his impact or you want to look at restructuring uh, the combinations, you have to look at some of the other guys that you could potentially put them with. Um, if the wings are adamant about keeping their righties and lefties, then you're probably looking at either DeKaiser or Chalowski being potential partners for him, not necessarily Philip Ronick, but... You know, you certainly could try that. I don't know that Green Chalowski really protects Mike Green's offensive impact anymore. And then I think it comes down to who would you rather have benefiting from DeKaiser's kind of steady presence? Is it the younger Philip Ronick or is it kind of the veteran Mike Green who should know a little bit more and should be a little bit more kind of uh, savvy with his plays? So I don't necessarily know that there is a better way to rearrange Detroit's top four than the pairings that they have right now, given what the intention is for those pairings. Now, certainly as we acquire more data and we see how the results look, if things need to be restructured based on data, then I think that's a different conversation. But right now, I think the sample size is too small to invalidate the theory behind the current pairings. And I think the current pairings are probably you know, the best way forward, at least for now. Yeah, that would be my conclusion too. I, I think, you know, I, I don't know if it's just because I think DeKaiser and Hironic make so much sense together as a pairing because 
they both can skate so well, they both can push the play, and yet they also can do the work in the ozone. I think they're, to me, they should be a no-brainer first pair here for the Red Wings and leading the way in minutes. And so I know Nemeth got a ton, a ton, a ton of work down the back half of that Western Conference stretch, um, partly because I think there were, there was some guys injured and they needed his defensive presence. If he ends up being the guy who, who's leading the way in, in ice time, it wouldn't stun me. But uh, Dick Heiser and Hornick, to me, are the guys who, who make the Red Wings the best when they're on the ice. And, and Green, not actually that far behind that. So uh, I know that it, especially recent memory says that Green hasn't been great, but at, at least uh, give it a little bit of time because the numbers say it hasn't been so bad. Uh, the next one to get into comes from Iserbaz, and he wants to know if the Red Wings to be a good team, the middle six goalie and defense need to be replaced. How many good roster players or prospects can fill those roles on a contender? So, and actually, I think probably Azurbaz really just means the bottom nine, like everything except the, the top nine. And I think there's a couple individual players in the middle six, but that's, I think, what he's asking. So, who outside of Larkin, Mantha, Bertuzzi uh, fits into a eventual contender on the Red Wings? And that's a, it's a big one. So, let's, let's, let's dive in. Yeah, I think uh, probably the first place to start is how far is Detroit away from being a contender? Um, so Max, you actually wrote this up last year, I believe, where you, you talked to Dom, and using his metrics, you guys were able to devise what a typical Stanley Cup contender looks like. And at that time, using Dom's version of game score and last year's lineup, the Wings only had two players that really clocked in as key players uh, as players that would be there um, on a Stanley Cup contender, and that was Dylan Larkin as your first-line center, and that was Dennis Chalowski as your third-pairing defenseman. Beyond that, the Wings were actually subpar in every other position. So, you know, to Izerbaz's point, yes, there's a lot that needs to be fixed. I'd say fast-forward to this season, and I think you can make a legitimate argument that Mantha and Bertuzzi probably solidify what a top line would look like on a Stanley Cup contender, um, you know, or you could at least make the case that they're reasonably close. And so, like Max, you said, we got to start with the bottom nine. And so of the Wings prospects who they've got right now, you know, conceivably, who's going to be able to slot in? I think at forward, really, there's only a handful of guys that have NHL potential in the system. And we talk a lot about how there's a lot of guys that the Wings need really on defense. I do kind of think the bigger need is actually at forward because you're going to see a lot of roster turnover um, in the next little bit without a lot of key NHL prospects. I think the guys that have a legitimate chance at being on a contending team, you can make an argument for Valeno as probably a third-line center. I think you can make an argument for uh, Zadina as potentially a second-line winger. I don't know that I've given up hope on him being that, given that we are just 13 months into his professional career. Um, but beyond that, I'm hard-pressed to say anybody else is a slam dunk on a contending NHL team. Yes, Michael Rasmussen is there, um, and he has potential. He did play a little bit last year. I don't have a lot of confidence that he's a top-nine forward on a Stanley Cup contending team, same thing for Evgeny Svechnikov, um, same thing for Giovanni Smith, Ryan Kuffner, and I think some of these other prospects like Jonathan Bergeron is a little bit tougher to project. I do think he's probably got some top nine potential, um, 
and potentially like Alvin Greva, that's Max's favorite player that the Wings drafted this past <laughs> year. You know, potentially he's a guy that could slot in on the bottom line, but I think you're probably pretty bare bones up front. Um, I think defense is honestly the better opportunity with a guy like Moritz Sider, Philip Ronick. Uh, Jared McIsaac, I still think, has a lot of potential. I think we forgot how good he was last year just because we haven't been able to see a lot of him this year. I think those three guys in particular uh, stand out to me. I'm a little less bullish on uh, Dennis Chalowski and Gustav Lindstrom and Oliver Kasky. I'm not as high on those guys. I don't think really sorry Yarvey's an NHL defenseman on a contending team. Um, so there are some pieces here, but there's still a lot more to be acquired, in my opinion. The guy I would push back on is Rasmussen. I, and I know, I get what you're saying uh, about him, but I, I think, especially when you're talking about third line, now if they wanted to be a center, he might have to not be a, a center to play in the top nine, uh, especially if you're talking about having someone between Larkin and Valeno uh, down the middle in, in the top nine. But I think Rasmussen can be that guy, even if he's just kind of like a, they want him to kind of be Jordan Stahl, I think, defensively. But he can be a 20-goal guy because of the power play, right? Like, I think he can make that kind of impact. And and if absolutely nothing else, he's going to be the net front on power play one from the second he's up in the NHL until whenever he leaves, right? I think that's a specialized enough skill that he has that's that can be really high-end and arguably already is really high-end uh, that I, th- I would think Rasmussen can be a part of that there. I mean, Svechnikov, you're kind of just crossing your fingers at this point. I think there's still something in there and he's, he's doing pretty well in the AHL, but I, I don't think I would maybe bank on it so much, but Rasmussen, I, I would feel fairly confident saying, you know, if you're just talking about being able to be a contributor at a, let's say top nine means guys with the nine most ice time. I think he can beat that still. Yeah, it's, it's tough. I mean, we're talking about a guy who's 20 years old right now and trying to project him out. Um, to me, just based on the plethora of information that we've got from his, CHL years and what we saw a little bit last year. Um, I'm not optimistic. To me, he does strike me, uh, like you said, Max, his potential usefulness is as a power play specialist. Um, and so are we talking about a guy like Justin Abdelkader, who basically plays net front, can chip in 10, 12 power play goals, but isn't really going to do much for you at five on five? Um you know, I'd make the argument that Justin Applicator is not a top nine forward on a Stanley Cup contending team. Sure, right. And I think Rasmussen's a little bit in that, not saying present day Applicator, more like prime Applicator, still not being a top nine forward. And I do think Rasmussen's he was, wasn't he? Wasn't he? Wasn't he a top nine forward on, on a Stanley in, Cup team? No, not in 2008, not in 2009. They went to the Cup in, uh, against the Penguins, wasn't he in the top yeah, nine? He's a rookie. Playoff run? He's a rookie. <laughs> he was in the Barely top gets nine. The Barely got minutes. I'm not going to uh, give you that. But uh, the, all, all that being said, I think he's a. I think Rasmussen is in that kind of mold. Now, I could certainly be proven wrong, but, um, you know, because he is 20 years old and he's got a lot of development ahead of him. But just my initial inkling is that he, he is in that kind of mold, not necessarily ever going to be a 5-on-5 five five impact guy, but can get you 10-12 power play goals. Right, and the guy we didn't mention that was Athanasiu, who I think, you know, he's, he's proven that he's a, a top-nine player for the Red Wings. Is he fit into the to the equation here? Is a is a whole other matter and one that you've kind of started to to get at on on Twitter with your poll. So I don't know if we want to go down that road right now either. But there are some pieces, I guess, in the system is where this this leads out. 
but whether it's in the draft and, and the guy who I think Red Wings fans should be uh, following as close as anyone is Quinton Byfield, because if you get a, a six foot four center who can offensively do the kind of things that Byfield is doing so far to start this season, um, that makes things look a lot better, a lot quicker. If you're if you're down the middle, Larkin, Byfield, Valeno, uh, you can feel pretty good. Another uh, another guy that I think you mentioned is is Bergeron, who to me and Mastro Simone, I guess could be another one. These are guys that sure, you're watching. Yeah. You're hoping that one of them can kind of hit. You know, like. I don't think it's reasonable to expect all your second round picks to, to, to turn into contributors on cup teams. But when you look at how many the Red Wings have had in the last couple of years, I think it's reasonable to, to maybe not expect, but hope rather optimistically that one of Bergen or Mastro Simone is that guy, both kind of more skilled, smaller forwards. But if one of those guys hits and, and can be a third line scoring type of player, you're pretty happy. Same deal with Svechnikov. I think you could lump him in there. Uh, at this point, even though he was a first rounder, I think that the injury can kind of um, reset expectations a little bit. So it's by no means automatic, but I think there's enough pieces to to kind of hope on there. It's it's I would describe it as a relatively deep system, just not one that's uh, deep in terms of top end talent. You know, like there's a lot of guys who could be something and and a couple guys who you think really will. I, I somehow I guess I seem to be the only guy who still thinks Philip Zadina is a potential top line winger and I, I understand why that maybe is the case because of the way that he started out. I still look at him and see a good player. So up front I understand the uh I understand the the question here because it, I don't I don't know that it looks like that talent to be a cup team is necessarily in the pipeline right now. But there are still pieces and I think if you're if you're looking for a reason to be optimistic, it's that there's enough pieces that if a couple hit, things can start to look pretty decent. And obviously, if if Joe Valeno proves that he can be a little bit more than people, myself included, think uh, think he can be on a cup team, that would help too. But uh, I think right now on, on a cup team, third line feels feels about right. And then you talked about back on D. A lot of this kind of does depend on, on what you think Jared McIsaac, Gustav Lindstrom, and I guess going farther down the line and I think way farther because he might go to college anti to Amisto can be yeah I think it's it's a challenge right now to really project some of these 2019 draft picks but you know Sider in in the limited glimpse we got definitely looks like he's going to be excellent and then McIsaac had a really strong year last year but you know with the injury we haven't really seen a lot of them this year to know um you know, what he's going to look like. I, and again, I'm not super optimistic on Lindstrom, McCaskey, any of the other guys beyond that. I think as of right now, kind of my tier is Sider's probably got the highest ceiling. Um, Philip Ronick's probably right behind him. And then I'm probably lumping McIsaac and Chalowski in the same bucket after that. And then I've probably got a steep drop off. Uh, just again, not knowing a whole lot about Tumisto, even though he's had an excellent start to the season thus far. I think he's got a long road ahead of him before we see him in the NHL. Yeah, and you know, I think they should sign Tori Krug. I've said that before. If if Krug makes the free agency, I think he makes all the sense in the world for them, both now and down the line in terms of his game, what he brings. He's he's from the area, so I don't think it'd be that hard of a pitch, especially considering the background he has with Jeff Blaschel. So even if, you know, you're looking at if if you're talking about drafting a defenseman, I guess is where I'm getting at with this. They're going to take a long time to get there, and the the best defenseman that I think most people have identified in this draft right now is Jamie Drysdale, another right-hander. Cider and Hronik are both right-handers. I don't think that should preclude them from drafting Drysdale if he's the guy people think he can be. Uh, but he also you know plays the same side of the of the ice as basically their two best young defensemen right now. So that's an interesting wrinkle. I think they should sign Tori Krug if they want to be a contender 
in the in the sooner term. But if you're looking still three, four, five years down the road, then maybe age uh, changes things a little bit. Goaltending the other dynamic. Philip Larson's off to a decent, but not you know, not crazy start. He's only played two games in Grand Rapids. I think he's given up to give up two in both games. So not bad, but you know the the defense core in Grand Rapids is also pretty good. So I think that's something to keep in mind with Larson, the whole way. Any any other thoughts you have on kind of the the future outlook and 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 where it leads for the Red Wings pipeline? I'm gonna say something exceptionally controversial just because it's near the end of the podcast. I still don't think you have the elite forward that you need to be the best player on the team to lead a team to the cup. And so I think that's the piece that the Wings need to hit on the most. Uh, so you look at a little bit like uh, what Carolina did when they hit on Andre Svechnikov, and I think that's something that he can grow into. He can be their best forward. I think Detroit, for them to know when the time is to turn the rebuild up, is when depending on what they hit in their draft position this year. Because if you hit one of those top six or seven forwards, I think any of those guys really have a legitimate chance at being an elite player in the NHL. Um, particularly if you hit on Byfield, like you mentioned, or Lafreniere, uh, if you're so lucky. But even Lucas Raymond or Alexander Holtz, um, Stutzel out in Germany, those guys all look great. I, I don't know that Dylan Larkin is that elite, elite piece, like top forward on the team. Um, but to be determined. Yeah, I mean, I think you can look at things, right? And you can say, you know, just look at the past cup teams, right? Like, is, is Larkin as good as the best player on the blues. I mean, you can make a case that he could be like your Ryan O'Reilly, but then you got to have a Shen and a Tarasenko and everything that comes with that. Uh, and, and the decor that they had, obviously, is he as good at, I mean, I, I don't know that I'm saying that he's Jonathan Taves, but I think he could be a Taves to someone else's cane, right? Like you got to have both sides of that. I think Dylan Larkin's a great player, but there's no doubt that the teams that win the cup have two super elite, at least players or just so many really good players that it doesn't matter right like the capitals it was like you know backstrom kuznetsov but ovi right and then you've got uh la they won it with kopitar and you know i mean this is we're getting a little bit farther down the road there quick dowdy right uh who, who else was on the, the floor I mean, mike richards to Foley. mike richards uh, yeah you had, uh, jeff carter you had a lot carter. of talent on that team Hundred percent, and so you're looking at. It, I don't think it's slanderous to Dylan Larkin to say that if they're going to get there, they need more high end to elite forward talent. I think Byfield or Lafreniere is the guy who does it. Uh, if if you get it, if you can get one of them, I think that pretty much puts you in position where you can start maneuvering um, to make to start making that 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 run sooner than later. But you also need so much to go right in the farm system. Still, I mean, I talk about what I think Zadina can be, but I don't. I'm not saying that I don't think there's a way it could go wrong you know it certainly could and and then you look at the situation where some of those other guys don't hit and and it can go wrong but i, I don't know I, I think that the the place the red wings are in right now is is about what what you expect a, a rebuilding team to be it, it, any rebuild is going to take some good breaks and uh, they are absolutely not immune from that so i think you know i i don't think you're off base at all i don't i don't really think it's that controversial to say they need an elite uh an elite forward pick in this next draft uh if if you know i guess if not this draft then one of the next two because number one those guys get arrive a little bit quicker and number two they they need a bat if they're going to if they're going to really compete for a cup exactly you want to shift some you want to shift gears a little bit yeah, we got a couple of lighter questions here we can really close with. Corey Fitzgerald wants to know, 
favorite road city to visit and what I do with my presumably little free time on the road. Prashant, how many road cities have you been to, by the way? Uh, let's see. Arenas that I've taken in a game at, that'd be obviously Carolina. I've done both the Joe LCA. Um, been to the Verizon Center in Washington. Um, been up to MSG. Been to TD Bank uh, in Boston. Been out to Anaheim. Uh, so that's probably it for me. It's a good arrangement, though. Yeah, still working on getting to all 31, potentially Vegas in the cards uh, in the next little bit. Which is your favorite of that you've been to? Uh, so if we're talking about the city, I love I love just what I can do in Boston, just because for me, I've got a lot of family in Boston. And so Boston's a city that I visit probably three or four times. And I just, you know, I'm a big uh, kind of craft beer person. And the New England beer scene is always... Very nice to go up and enjoy. So I've I've always loved visiting Boston because I just think there's so much uh, to do in addition to me having so much of my family up there. Yeah. How about which which arena? Well, the arena, the arena experience. I mean, I'm I'm not gonna lie, and this isn't me just because I live here, but PNC's arena in-game experience I think is better than any in-game experience I've had at any other arena. Um, Yes, the Joe was had its like special place in my heart, um, and I got to visit in the last season there, and I've seen a lot of great games there, and the barn was awesome, but the arena kind of was a dump, uh, to put it lightly. And then Little Caesars, phenomenal arena, but the in-game atmosphere just hasn't been there yet. I think you got to see a little bit of that from in, from opening night, and that's maybe the hope, but I, I haven't personally experienced that. And so for me, PNC's kind of in-game experience, I've been to multiple conference finals games now in Carolina, um, one back in 2009 and then obviously last year. And that place is so loud, I usually leave with my ears ringing and it's hard to beat. So I can't can't argue with PNC here. Yeah, I'll have to get down there. I I am bummed out that I'm not going to make it for the game in a couple weeks because that does sound pretty awesome. Best atmosphere like arena I've been to. I don't. I have a hard time measuring the arenas without factoring in the atmosphere for some reason. Like Nashville's atmosphere blows right. everything out of the water that I've been to. Oh, that's like, another one I've been to. I forgot to mention that. Yeah, and that's just a kick-ass time, right? Like they have they have such great kind of like traditions. Their goal song is really fun. Their chants, you know, whatever. But but um, it, it, everyone's really into the game there, and I think that makes Nashville a really fun atmosphere. Also, happens to be a pretty fun city, but just in terms of pure cities, I think any like put Vancouver up against any city in any context and you're going to have a really hard time beating it. Like everything about Vancouver is pretty awesome except how expensive things are. So, uh, (laughs) that would probably be number one for me. I don't know. I I think, uh, Montreal is cool. Um, a lot of like kind of culture there and obviously great food in both of those two places. And then what do I do with my little free time on the road? The answer is just eat. Like I'm either on my laptop working or looking up the best, restaurants in, in whatever city I may be in and trying to take in whatever the the prime local fare is. So I had a uh, steak in Calgary, which was fantastic as advertised. Shout out to Alberta. I really liked Calgary. Um, and yeah, you just, you, you do the whole, the whole food tour and you hope to have, you hope to, to get it right. Cause you only have a limited amount of uh, time there. This is uh next question is kind of a little food related. Well, it's very food related too. Uh, a couple of questions really, I guess, kind of playing off our name. 
Peter asks, uh, what is the best flavor of sauce to have with wings for breakfast? Do you have thoughts on that? I have a very firm opinion. You have a very firm opinion? Okay, well, I have probably a very different opinion because I think there's two categories. I think you have to talk about just the straight-up heat aspect of the sauce, and then I think you have to talk about the actual flavor of the sauce, which is what I think Peter's getting at. Uh, as a kid, whenever I grew up, I would always try to eat just the hottest sauce possible just to, like, annoy people because, you know, you'd always go in and there'd be, like, this disclaimer saying, like, do not order this sauce unless, like, you're prepared to, you know like wave any medical attention or whatever. And then I would just go and order it and eat that just because I thought it was funny. Um, so I always have a soft spot in my heart for like the nuclear sauces <laughs> that you can get, um, particularly like the one from Zaxby's. I think they call it the nuclear sauce or whatever. They bring it out and basically everyone's eyes start watering. So I just love eating that one. Um, but probably the actual best answer is like a mango habanero. So like a little bit of a sweet, spicy uh, mix to it without too much heat. I think it's just Frank's and I think like, I mean, if, if we're just talking, it, it applies to everything. If you're just talking wings, like Buffalo sauce is Frank's and I really won't hear, hear it otherwise. And <laughs> so to me, just wings, like that's the answer and wings for breakfast. That's the answer too, because hot sauce is great on breakfast food and that is Frank's. So, uh, Frank's is not a paid advertiser of this show, but if they want to be, uh, my DMS are open because I absolutely adore Frank's red hot. They're very versatile sauce. They really are. And and I think that, you know, that leads into Shayna's question, which what is the traditional breakfast dish to pair with wings and what drink? My answer is hash browns because I already like Frank's on hash browns. So I'll just put the wings on top of my hash browns. It'll do some work for me and be delicious. Also, hash browns are just phenomenal anyway. Uh, and drink, I don't know, uh, probably orange juice. But I don't know. That might be a little weird with wings, with, with hot sauce. Uh lemonade i guess i could see i'm I'm like the word like i things i drink with breakfast are, are pretty limited so i don't even know what that what the right answer is there yeah that's a little the drink part is tough i'll say the best traditional breakfast dish so i'm in the south has to be waffles uh, okay. you got to put that hot chicken wing on a waffle get a nice uh nice schmear to go with that and then you're all set probably for a drink you know, I've been getting creative and working with English milk punches, which I don't know if you've ever heard of. You actually like make a cocktail and then strain it through curdled milk. Um, and then it adds this like sweetness to the uh, to the cocktail that you don't really get. And it kind of takes away some of the bite of the alcohol. I feel like that would go great with like really hot wings on a waffle. That would just kind of cool everything down and make it great. So you want alcohol for breakfast? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm imagining this is Sunday morning brunch. <laughs> I'm putting myself Fair. in the scenario here. Game day food. Ooh, best game day food? No, no, no. I'm saying that's like a game day, right? Oh, like yeah, if you're, yeah. you're pre-gaming for a tailgate or something like that, it works. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you get yourself some some hot chicken wings, fried chicken wings, get yourself some uh some waffles, a little bit of a good schmear, and then you make yourself some milk punch ahead of time and you're good. Yeah, it all works out. All right, uh week ahead. Canucks are coming to town Tuesday, Ottawa, they're going to Ottawa on Wednesday, and then the scorching hot Buffalo Sabres, home of the Buffalo Wing, in town on Friday. Uh, what are you expecting from this week? Well, it'll be a good measuring stick to see the Canucks again so soon after the Canucks uh, put a herd on the wing, so hopefully that'll be a good one. And then you get a little bit of a tale of two tapes. You get Ottawa, who's really, really struggled as expected, but then you get 
the league best Buffalo Sabres, I believe, or second best. They're right up at the top of the league, right with the Oilers, as everybody predicted um, <laughs> to start the season. So that'll be fun. I think uh, Ralph Kruger's got Buffalo playing really, really well uh, right now, and so I think it'll be a good test for the Wings. Yeah, absolutely. No, it'll it'll be interesting, and my my biggest thing to watch is how big of an ovation does Quinn Hughes get at LCA because I think Red Wings fans are are nearly as big of fans as Quinn Hughes as Canucks fans right now. So that'll be interesting to uh, to te- check the temperature of when uh, when Vancouver rolls into town. I think that is it for us. Thank you guys as always for listening. Our next episode will be in the middle of this week on the Athletic. If you want to hear that and keep up to date with all of our Red Wings content on there theathletic.com slash wings for breakfast it'll get you a 40 percent off code and we would love to have you join us on there thank you guys as always and we'll see you next time